Well, good morning, Sailorville. If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find the book of James. James chapter 2, as we continue in our series, Keeping It Real, looking at the great theological practitioner himself, the half-brother of Jesus, James. Let's start with a word of prayer, shall we? Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. And even as I think of the song we just sang, what a precious way to begin. We wait for you. We wait for your blessing, your power, your enlightenment. And surely, Lord, your word enlightens our minds, our hearts, and everything about us in pointing back to you. We pray today, Lord, I pray for everyone in this room watching online who are waiting. There's some heavy burden in their life, and they just need to wait for you. Would you give them the divine patience that would help them in this situation? And then, Lord, I pray for everyone here listening and praying that you would open our eyes, you would open our hearts toward the people that we are reticent to interact with, to reach out to, to help, to love upon. God, give us your eyes so that we might see today that truly there are no ordinary people. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 2 So here is the renowned and revered prophet Samuel, the prophet of Israel under the time of the very first king in Israel, Saul. Saul has been rejected. He's been rejected by God. And so Samuel has been sent to the house of Jesse uh, to anoint the next king of Israel. And so he has seen the former king, Saul, literally stood head and shoulders above every other so he was so tall. Uh, he was taller than any of the soldiers of Israel. And so when Samuel went to Jesse's house and Jesse started carting all of his strapping boys before Samuel, he thought, yeah, this is the one. And seven boys went by him. No, 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 the Spirit of God said until finally that little shepherd boy got hooked from out in the field and he got anointed. It was in the process of all of these denials from God that the Lord spoke to Samuel with these very familiar words. Many of you know them. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord, finish it. That's right. We are inherently given to favoritism. Would you agree? Be it physical stature or age or sporting interest or stage of life, whoever made up that term, we favor, do we not? We favor the powerful over the weak, the beautiful over the homely, the prestigious, over the ordinary, and uh, to 
link up with James, the wealthy over the poor. Surely the writer of Proverbs is right, and he said, the, wealth, the wealthy have many friends. But here's what another thing Solomon said, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. What James addresses here in the second chapter, in the first 13 verses, is not new revelation. God has always, God has always, he has always wanted his people to see one another. Regardless of looks, social status, position, etc., as equal in the worth, equal in worth in the eyes of God. And there are no chapter breaks in James, so realize this, what we're picking up in verse one is really a continuation of what we saw last week in the last couple of verses, if you were with us. And just remember, speaking of eyes, the eyes of God are watching. They, they have been watching this, these Jewish Christians, if you'll recall. These are Jews who have placed their faith in, in the Messiah, Yeshua, the Lord Jesus, and they're so Jewish, the word assembly, we'll see here in a minute in, in verse two, is, is the word synagogo. This is the word, uh, this is the actual synagogo, uh, which is, uh, we, we get our word synagogue from this word. They're, they're seeing the church where they are, where they are meeting as, as a synagogue. It just means an assembly, like it's translated in our English Bibles. Actually, it's, it's the Greek word synagogue, doesn't matter. You can hear the word synagogue in it. But let's just look at this context and listen with your ears, with your eyes, and with your hearts. My brothers, show no partiality, favoritism, as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. I love that line. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, calling his brother the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, into your synagogue, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. Well, you say to the poor man, hey, stand over there. Or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? It's a rhetorical question. What's the answer? Yes. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Answer? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones you, who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as, a tra as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law but fails at one point, has become accountable or guilty for all of it. For he who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't murder. If you do not commit adultery but you murder, you become a transgressor of the law. 
So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God's unspoken character is our unspoken sin. His unspoken character is that he's not a respecter of persons. Romans 2.11 says, there is no favoritism with God. Have you ever read that? But we show favoritism. We just don't call it a sin. My brothers, you see that in verse one, also in verse five, he is, James is addressing Christians. We don't ever assume everybody's here is, that's here is a Christian. In fact, I assume the opposite. I'm assuming several, if not many of you, are not true Christians, and I'm hoping that the unfolding of this epistle is gonna ferret it out, and some of you are gonna repent and believe the gospel and be saved. But he is writing to Christians but he's not assuming they're all Christians as we will soon see. But we're talking about favoritism and here's the question before you. Why choose mercy over favoritism? Because mercy triumphs over judgment. I mean, you could just say, well, there and then let's be done. But let's unpack it a little bit more. First, because when we do, what do you know? We become more like Jesus. Notice again with James. James, the half-brother of Jesus, calls Jesus, he calls him the Lord of glory. So in addressing favoritism, James appeals to his glorious brother who, think about Jesus now, interacted as no other Jew would do with a Samaritan woman at the well. Healed a Roman centurion's servant. Praised the Samaritans on more than one occasion. Ate and drank with sinners, allowed a prostitute to touch, yes, touch him. And speaking of touch, this is one of my favorite miracles and interactions before the miracle that Jesus ever had with somebody who needed a miracle, namely a leper in Mark chapter one. Here's what, it is. Here's what he said. And a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling, he said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, by the way, the leper got it right. He, wasn't, he didn't question Jesus' ability. He wondered about his willingness. And that's always the way we should pray. Don't question God's ability. Your prayer is for his willingness. He got it right. And that's what moved Jesus. Look, it says, so move with pity. He said to him, I will be clean. Is that what it says? No, move with pity he stretched out his hand and did what? The very thing this leper had not experienced in who knows how long, somebody touching him. Jesus could have just said, be clean. But he needed an emotional healing on top of his physical healing. He touched him. Some of you may know, but I'm guessing most of you don't know Lori. Lori is a, a woman that's been coming to our church for some time. When she was one year old, her 21-year-old mother walked away from her temporarily, and that's all it took. 
and she wandered into a pile of leaves that were on fire. The result was that Lori was horribly burned and disfigured, would spend the next year, entire year in the hospital, and for many years to come, in and out, in and out, skin grafts the whole nine yards. She'd been coming, and she's a lover of God, fervent worshiper of Christ. And when I first met Lori, and she knows this, I was reticent to embrace her, and I speak to my shame. She told me, I know you were. That made it worse. My wife wasn't. Shocker of shockers. I mean, I'm with my wife one day. We're talking to a woman who had to be about 90 years old, and she walked away, and my wife says, she's pretty. I thought, she's old. <laughs> but she wasn't looking at that woman the way I was looking at that woman. And she wasn't looking at Lori the way I was looking at Lori. And I had to repent. I got permission with Lori the other day. We talked about this. I was trying to get you know, a little sense of what it was like growing up struggling with partiality and people, you know, stiff-arming her and saying some things that were just unbelievable. Not unbelievable, just awful. But in, we're going back and forth. There's no bitterness, not a shred of bitterness in this woman. No resentment. She loves God. She sees the big picture. She knows God is sovereign. And she says to me, she says, Pastor, I'm going to get a new body, you know. The implication was it'll be more functional and more attractive. And as I said earlier, Lori, you're already, you already have a new soul, and it's beautiful, and that's what makes you beautiful. You want to be more like Jesus? Then love the Lori's as you love the lovely. Because made in the image of God, they already are. Believe that. Verse 2 says that these individuals, he's, James is picking up the rich and the poor. And you, you pick your area of favoritism, whatever it is. And one of them, they're, they're coming in shabby. They, they have shabby clothes. It's, it's not just that they're poor. They, they, the, the implication here in the original is that they're lacking social graces. Have you ever been around somebody like that? Don't point. In the first ministry I had, I, we had a home right next to where we lived that was just dilapidated building. I was waiting for them to burn it down. They finally did. The family moved out first. But I was in that home one day, and I had the joy of leading not one, but five adults to Christ. None of them had any social graces. One of them had a kid that had negative social graces. 
She was in church every week, and I have to admit, I just, she just, she was dirty, she was unclean, her hair was always disheveled. But there was always this gal in our church whose name was Barb. She always would take her aside, and I would see her in the in the foyer combing out her hair. So she'd be more presentable. Barb was always loving on this little girl. Always. And so fast forward 10 years later, uh, right here in this church, there's a wedding and, and uh, people are coming from, from the former church. Some people are coming from California. They're coming from all over for this wedding. And I see the little girl who's now a young woman. And I greeted her and I hugged her and she hugged me, but she pulled back and she said, is Barb here? I brought the gospel into your home. (laughs) Barb brought the gospel into her heart. And when you do that, you're being like Jesus. There's another reason we should choose mercy over favoritism. It's because God has chosen the lesser to make his glory greater. And that's reflected in the middle part, verses five through eight. But it suffices to say that in the first century, most Christians were poor. Not all of them, obviously. But most of them were. And for that reason, it's for that reason, Paul said to the Corinthians, who were constantly given toward favoritism in so many ways, he said to these words, and I've italicized one letter several times in the beginning. Here it is. For consider your calling, brothers, not many... Of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. C.S. Lewis wrote a sermon titled The Weight of Glory. And in that sermon, he said these words. Drink these words in, will you please? The dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a whore and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is Immortals that we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors, unquote. In the late 1700s, 
There, the, the Countess of Huntington was a woman by the name of Selena Hastings. She was incredibly wealthy, but she was also incredibly godly. She helped build over 60 chapels. She started a college. George Whitfield, the great evangelist of that century, said she was a woman on fire for Christ. She, looking at that passage and seeing all the, those, the manys there that we've italicized the word the letter M, she famously said she was glad that Paul said not many and not any. She goes, I owe my salvation to the letter M. And it doesn't matter who you are. Whether you're rich or you are poor, you are precious in God's eyes. He wants you, he wants all of you. And he wants you with new eyes to see people differently than perhaps you see them now. In verse eight, when he says, he talks about the law saying, love your neighbor as yourself. That that didn't originate with Jesus. That, That goes back to Leviticus 19. Where, we, where Moses wrote in Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. Jesus said it's that, it's loving God and loving your neighbor. That The whole law hangs on this. How you doing on that? When we live like this, when we choose the lesser, and to reach into their lives. We make his glory greater. Just the other day, one of our very own, Steve Woody, one of our own amateur photographers, posted this picture with the the following. Pictures just can't do God's glory justice. And that is glorious, isn't it? But when we see the poor, when we see the weak, when we see the hurting, the lessers, as rich in faith and lean into them, we make God's glory glorious. That's what we do. Here's a third reason you should choose mercy over favoritism because favoritism is sin, a great sin. Look at verse nine. Verse nine says, but if you show partiality, that's for favoritism, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. That that phrase, you are committing sin, that's that's, that's in the accusative. The Greek is very strong here. It's pointing at you and saying, that is sin. It's like Nathan coming to David, who'd been hiding his sin, and said, you are the man. Remember that? That's the idea. That's the force of this right here. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, yes, I mean, I, I've shown some favoritism. It's not like I killed anybody. Well, he gets into that here. What, what, what does verse 10 mean when it says, if, look at it, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. What does that even mean? I was thinking about this, how that applies to this. I was thinking about this. Um, 
I have several T-shirts, which I, I really like them, and I don't want to throw them away. They're not even that old. But they all have three itsy-bitsy holes right at the belt line. You hardly notice them. But when, my, but when my wife sees those holes, she says, throw that shirt away. Because in her mind, a little mar mars the whole thing. And that's exactly what James is saying. That is what he's saying. Remember, uh, this, is a, this is a Jewish, these are Jewish Christians. They understood the law. James is seeing the law as a seamless garment. Tear it in one place, you ruin the whole thing. And he illustrates it in verse 11. If I commit murder, I'm a murderer, right? We don't have any problem saying that. If I commit adultery, I'm an adulterer, right? If I lie, I'm a liar. If I purposely cheat on my taxes, you knew I'd go to meddling. I'm a thief. The point is that James has placed favoritism in the same category of adultery and murder. And that is what makes it a great sin. And until we see it, you never run from something you're not afraid of. But if you're afraid of something, you run. And we should run from favoritism. R. Kent Hughes said, favoritism indicates the tilt of one's soul. Where does yours tilt? Here's the last, this is the last thing I want to, how, why, why should we choose mercy over favoritism? And this one is very powerful to me personally. Because on judgment day, God will use your mercy in his measurement. How you, how's that grab you? I mean, look at it again. Look at, look at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. On judgment day, God will use your mercy as his measurement. James isn't into cliches. He doesn't care if you got Bible verses on the walls in your home or on your coffee cups. He wants to know whether it's operative in your life. And if you think this is a hard word, just wait till you see where we're going. Faith without works is dead when it's alone. That's why some of you who have been feigning that you're really Christians, you're not Christians. You've never been saved. You've never repented of your sin. You need to repent and believe the gospel. It'll change your destiny for sure, but it'll change your life. And that's what James is all about. Remember, and really, he is hearkening back to his brother. It's his brother that in the Olivet Discourse you know, talked about individuals who are coming into the kingdom of God and eternity on judgment day. And remember what he says to him? You put your faith in me, enter into, no, he didn't say that. 
He said, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you gave me something to wear. I was a prisoner, you came and visited me. And you remember, they said, what what are you talking about? When did we ever do that? Hey, when you did this to the least of my brother, you did it for me, remember that? And here it is, the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So James is agreeing with his brother that on the judgment day, God will use your mercy as his measurement. And I know what you're thinking. I thought the measurement would be what we did with Jesus, what we did with the gospel. It will be. But what will the evidence be that you really believed? Therein lies the question. Where is the evidence now? As you stockpile your riches, as you go after every fancy that's out there, and you ignore the ones who need help. And I'm guilty. And I'm calling this place to repentance and believe the gospel that doesn't just transform your destiny, it transforms your life. Frank Stegg said this, place a mouse before a cat and one sees what a cat is. Place a person in need before a true child of God and one sees what a true child of God is. So, as I was getting ready the other day, I looked up to God, and I was kind of crying. I said, God, give me the eyes of my wife. I'm still praying that. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this hard word from your servant James. Help us, Lord, to choose mercy over favoritism as we know that mercy triumphs over judgment. We repent of our self-centeredness, of our narcissistic ways, and how we ignore the poor, the hurting, the unlovely, those that are created in your image and are before your eyes as beautiful as they could possibly be. So put your eyes into ours. I'd be happy just to have my wife's for that matter. But do your perfect work. And I do pray for those who are in this room 
who are seeing for the first time. They're really not Christians. They've just been feigning it all this time. If that's you, dear friend, repent and believe on the one who came and became naked so that he might clothe himself with your sin. That's a loving thing to do. And trust him as your Savior and your Lord. And be on your way to becoming more like him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's stand.